So um, I got my degree in biology, and uh, any biology majors out there? Yeah? Yeah, thank you, God, I'm done with that. All right, anyway, so I got my degree in biology. There's this miserable class that you have to take in order to get a degree in biology. It is called microbiology. Uh, you have to study things that you can't even see. So you're studying bacteria and viruses, and there's this one big project. So like the culmination of your work in this lab in microbiology is that you have to discover the unknown. Is it streptococcus? Is it psyllid? Whatever, you know, you got to figure this out. So they assign you something, and then you've got to get into the lab and figure it out. And so it takes great precision mixed with great technique in order for you to be able to discover this unknown. So you uh, do all these things and you begin to culture the bacteria. Culture, if you don't know what that means, that means that you grow the bacteria like in an incubator. And uh, then you take your culture and then you examine that culture and then you begin to figure out like, you know, what it is, right? And so the entire semester you're spent doing this. And there was one problem with our lab that, that semester was that the cultures got contaminated. What that means is that some unknown bacteria got on those augers and that gel stuff, that, the Petri dish that you grow this in, and no one could figure out what they were supposed to figure out. And, and i tell you that story tonight because we're about to look at perhaps the wisest man in history. And he has um, done some things in the laboratory of life, if you will. And with great precision and great technique, he has approached the laboratory of life in this grand experiment to try to figure out if he can find meaning. And so he does all of these things, and what he figures out is that his culture is contaminated, and he can't find meaning in the culture. See, the culture is contaminated because what we said on week one of this series is that the rhythm of creation is broken, that we were created to be in step with our creator but it's been contaminated by sin. And so what Solomon, the wisest man to ever walk the face of planet Earth, what he's gonna teach us tonight, if we'll lean in and listen, listen up, is that there is not life under the sun. And so we've come in here tonight, and my hope is, is that you would begin to audit your life a little bit tonight. That you would begin to examine some things in your life. And that you would arrive to the similar conclusion that Solomon arrived to, that, that life under the sun, life as we know it, apart from Christ, is meaningless. And just like when I was in microbiology lab and my, my experiment that I spent my semester on was a failed experiment, Solomon spent his life on an experiment, and it was a failure. Let it not be so of us. Let us come here tonight and evaluate what we're doing, and let us see our present reality, and I hope that you would consider a better reality, and before we leave tonight, I hope that you would see your future reality. If you're taking notes tonight, write this spiritual truth number one down, present reality, present reality. Solomon, he penned a few books of the Bible, but the one that we're going to be in tonight is the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, we'll start in chapter 1, but we'll survey a lot of the book. If you can find the book of Psalms, if you're new to the Bible, you just go right in the middle, and that's usually around Psalms, and then you want to hit Proverbs, which Solomon wrote. He also wrote Song of Solomon, love story, it's kind of erotic, anyway, and then Ecclesiastes, okay? Ecclesiastes chapter 1, here we go, verse 1, here's what Solomon says to us tonight. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, all right? We're like, all right, cool, I'm going to listen up. He's a king. And here's what he says, meaningless, <laughs> meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. He's like that crotchety old man, like maybe your granddad, you know, like you had coffee with him recently, and you're like, hey, granddad, how you doing? He's like, Bruh. 
He just grunts now, you know, doesn't even say things. His ears are so big and nose is big and hair is growing out everywhere except for on his head, you know. And, and Solomon, he's at the end of his life and he's like, what, what is life? Hey, uh, Solomon, your grass is growing. Who cares? It's meaningless. You want to read the book? No. You know, I mean, he's just so chipper with us tonight, isn't he? And Solomon, it's weird that he would come to this conclusion because next to Jesus, he's the wisest man that ever lived. And he had opportunity that you and I dream about. Like Solomon, when it comes to prestige, like Solomon was the man of prestige. He, he uh, wrote over 3,000 proverbs, over 1,000 uh, songs. He, he has penned three books in the, in the best-selling book of all time. Solomon wrote three of the books in here. Um, he has more degrees than Fahrenheit. I mean, brother was sought after by people all over the world for his wisdom. Not only did he have prestige, that brother had pleasure, pleasure unfathomable. I mean, he, he, could, he, he had more women than, than we could ever imagine. He had 700 wives. Some of you are like, man, that just hurts my head to think about, right? 300 concubines. Concubine, it was wrong, but it was, it's a sex slavery. A Solomon, he could have ate a different meal with a different woman three meals a day for an entire year. Solomon, he knew pleasures unfathomable. He didn't, he didn't go to see T-Swift on the, on the reputation tour. Like, he bought the tour. He's like, Taylor, I own you, all right? You're coming to my place tonight. Uh, Solomon, he would throw, part, I mean, epic parties. He would slaughter over 20,000 cattle for one party. It makes your little Memorial Day barbecue that you think is going to be awesome because you got a fire pit and you got some ribs and some whatever your sauce is in the city and you're going to do this big thing and you've gathered all your boys. It makes that look JV, all right? I mean, Solomon, he knew all, he had prestige, he had pleasure, but he had power. He was the king for 40 years. He was the king in the golden era of Israel's history. Solomon, again, was one of the most sought after men in the world. Solomon built things. He built aqueducts. You and I planted flowers this spring. Solomon planted forests. Solomon built one of the seven wonders of the world. I mean, he built this, the, 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 the temple of God. Even modern architects, look at that. I don't know how they did that. I don't think we could do that. And Solomon, he is this man, and his conclusion at the end of his life, it's crazy. He says it's meaningless. He was this guy that was like a, you know, he, like don't knock it till you try it to the next level, but it's meaningless. Imagine Bill Gates, Stephen Hawking, Hugh Hefner. Imagine them morphed into somebody that was also the Pope and the President. This is Solomon. And he says it's all meaningless. And you're like, What? How could, how could you have all of that, all of that power, pleasure, prestige, all of that prominence, and say it's meaningless? This word meaningless, it's something like he, like he has a, a memory problem in his old age because he says it over 30 times in this book. You'll find this word meaningless on every page of the book of Ecclesiastes. He's trying to prove a point to us tonight. This word meaningless in the Hebrew is the word havel, havel. And it, it's translated as vanity or futility or meaningless. Other parts of the scripture, they translate it as kind of like a, a whimsical, like a mist, like a vapor that Solomon is trying to overstate in this autobiography of his life and his, his laboratory of trying to find meaning that it's not possible, that your life is but a vapor. And he says, so what you do with your vapor, it matters. And where you seek to find meaning tonight, where you have looked for pleasure, prestige, power, prominence, whatever, where you look for those things matters. And Solomon is teaching us tonight. And I think we've come in here tonight and, and we're spending our life on something, right? Like, like you're alive, you're here tonight, it's summertime, you're excited hopefully. 
And we've come in here and we want fulfillment, right? I mean, this is what we, we should want fulfillment. We want the American dream. We want things to happen in our life. We want liberty. We want life. We want happiness. And a lot of us connect fulfillment to happiness. But happiness is such, a, it's such an elusive thing. Happiness is, is such an ethereal. It's almost like an ideal. And so when we try to gain happiness, it seems to be like catching wind, Right? Like, like happiness, you, you're happy for a moment, like for real, and then, and, then you, and then you see someone else has something better than you because they, they're richer than you or whatever, and, and it just makes you unhappy now. And so what, what happens is that we get on this thing that's called the hedonic treadmill. And the hedonic treadmill is uh, this thing that describes our pursuit of pleasure. Hedonic is this, uh, rooted in this word hedonism that we desire to, to find pleasure. And the hedonic treadmill, let me just break that down for you real quick. It's this idea that the next thing is gonna make you happy, right? And so we, we come here tonight and we're like, you know what, I'm just trying to find meaning. And so we start, you know, out just walking in life and, and it seems like meaning's right there. Like I can almost grab it, but just like when I get up there, it's kind of awkward, but you know, I was like, oh, I and then I was gone, right? And so I'm like, oh, I need to keep walking. And, and what happens is that sometimes we think, oh, if I had money, then I'll have meaning. And so we, we kick it up. We're like, all right, man, I'm a, I'm a young adult. I'm a graduated. It's time to make that cheese, right? It's time to make that money. And so we're marching in our careers, right? And we got that first big job. You know, we ain't broke. We ain't eating ramen noodles no more. You know, now forget ramen noodles. I'm going to PF Chang's, right? And so you get pad thai and stuff like that. You didn't know what that word was in college, right? You was eating spam and ramen noodles. Just me. Okay, anyway, and so you start marching towards money thinking that money is going to give you meaning, but then somewhere along the way, and maybe it's when you get to be an old man like me or Josiah in your 30s, you realize that money's not going to satisfy you. And, and, you, and maybe you read a study like this that, that being rich won't make you happy and being poor won't make you happy either. Duh. <laughs> that, that what, what social scientists tell us is that the more money you have doesn't result in more happiness. Um, what that means is this, that someone with a household income that's, that's kind of upper middle class or middle class, like, um, like, so let's say that you reached like the pinnacle of your career and you're making 75K a year. Praise Jesus, if that were, you know, right? Something like, wow, you know? And, and, and let's say you got there. What studies tell us is that the person who makes 75,000 a year and the person who makes a million a year, they have the same level of happiness. And I was talking with a guy, he's an executive VP of Wells Fargo Bank. He hangs out with rich people, okay? And uh, he used to work with the Waltons, aka Walmart people. And he told me this, he said that we started dealing with big customers who made millions and millions. And he said, there's a level when you begin to make so much money that it actually takes away your happiness. That's why you can see people who are banking and they're miserable and you're like, I don't understand. Like, let me try, you know? And Solomon knew this, right? I mean, he was uber rich. And here's what he writes in Ecclesiastes 5. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. Isn't this, isn't this true? Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Rockefeller said at the end of his life, how much is enough? He said, one more dollar. Solomon goes on, he says, this too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet whether they eat little or much, check this out. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. That Solomon is saying, the wisest man in the earth, he's saying this, having more money doesn't make you happier, it makes you heavier. 
Having more wealth doesn't lead to anything other than more worry. And so some of y'all are like, yeah, well, you know, but, but I, all right, I'm not going to make money, but I'm going to get up today and I'm going to try to find some pleasure, right? And so I'm like, all right, if I get some pleasure, I'm about to get on this. And I got to pick it up on the pleasure game because, like, I, I kind of worked hard in college and I didn't really get to play much. And so I thought that I was going to make a lot of money, but, but, but I realized that, that I, just, I need pleasure. And so we think this, that having more pleasure in our life is going to make us happy and lead to more meaning. And so we're like, all right, it's royal season. <laughs> the tailgate happening this week, yeah. And we, oh, okay, we're walking to pleasure. And so we think, all right, I'm going to chase, I'm going to be the king of Westport. <laughs> Everybody going to know me down there. And, and then I'm going to chase, I'm going to get in a relationship, but I'm going to have one on the side. So I got to have like three cell phones just to keep everything straight. So, you know, and so anyway, and then I'm going I'm to try to make memories. And then I'm going to, if I could get on, there's that one vacation. I'm going to try to get that vacation. And so, I, or, you know what? I'm going to get a blog. I'm going to start a blog. Everybody's going to kick start, go fund me. I'm going to do something. I'm going to get some accomplishments. I'm going to chase these pleasures. And when I get that thing, I want money, but it's a, it's a, when I get that, when I get that woman, I get that child, whatever, I get that, I'm going to get meaning. And so we almost get there and then we realize it ain't going to work. And we chase these things, right? We get on this hedonic treadmill thinking, if I get that thing, and then we realize like, there's never going to be an iPhone that satisfies like, I can't get drunk so much that I'm, that I'm satisfied. Typically, it works in the opposite, right? Like, you don't wake up hungover going, man, that was awesome. Can't wait to do that again. I feel, just feel so full right now. Right? Like, and so we know this. And Solomon, he knew this too. He said this, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. He said, I refused my heart no pleasure. He said, my heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. He says, yeah, when I surveyed all that my hands had, had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. That Solomon is saying what some of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century concluded they concluded that there's this thing, it's called the paradox of pleasure, that we can chase pleasure all day trying to find meaning, but we won't get it. It's the paradox of pleasure that when something becomes habitual, like when we get something that really pleases us and then it becomes a habit, it ceases to be enjoyable. You, you know this, right? Like, like you had that first joint and you were high as a kite and you thought it was awesome. And, 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 and you were like so, like it was great and, and, and the pleasure went up, but then now you're a pothead and you got to smoke a whole, like the pleasures don't happen. And what was once a thrill now has become just something that you have to do to make it through. And so we run after these things thinking that we're going to get high on this or high on that and it may not be something illegal, which is wrong. Let me just say that real quick, okay? And so it may not be that. It may be something that's, that's perfectly legal, perfectly good and you're running after it and what happens is at your tolerance levels increase and your satisfaction levels decrease. Victor Frankl in a book that he said that for man's search for meaning, he says this, that happiness cannot be pursued. It must ensue or you will be unhappy. Ravi Zacharias, one of the greatest theologians, he says this, pleasure without boundaries leads to a life without purpose. 
And so if you're on the hedonic treadmill chasing pleasure, trying to find meaning and ultimate satisfaction, listen, you'll never get traction in your satisfaction. And so some of y'all are like, you know what? I don't need money. I don't need pleasure. All I need is a man. Oh, okay, okay, all right. <laughs> all right, if I, you know, I'm just going to get back on it. That was a little rocky, right? I'm going to get back on it. But, but if I get a man and I get married, or if I get a woman, if I get married, everything, I'll have meaning. Marriage equals meaning. And so I'm a young adult. I'm starting to get a little older, but I'm reading this, you know, just kind of worried about my singleness, but I'm going to get a man, I'm going to get a woman, and I'm going to start running after this thing. And so we pick up the pace, because we're now 29, 32, 38, whatever, and we're trying to get this, you know, settled down, and we think that marriage is going to fix us. And so we run after marriage, and see what happens, the marriage really doesn't heal you, it reveals you. <laughs> and so marriage takes a lot of work, y'all pray for me. Um, and so we run after this thing, and we think, okay, if I could just get this thing, and Solomon, he would say, bro, I've been married 700 times. It ain't going to work. And so we think, if I could just get this thing, if I could get a certain place, I, I get a certain possession, if I can get a certain person, it, it will complete me. Uh, thank you. Y'all gonna have to sing resurrection over me in a minute. <laughs> Man, I'm exhausted. I'm gonna get a drink real quick. Appreciate it. Listen. Tonight, for some of you, that's your life. And you may not be out of breath like I am right now, but spiritually, what's going on? And we run after these things, and God wrote, I know it's an old book, but it's more than an old book, it's an eternal book. In an eternal book, an old book gets old, right? But an eternal book is timeless. And Solomon wrote some things for us tonight. And he's saying that life under the sun, it's meaningless. And if you want to get traction in your satisfaction, if you want to take a move towards meaning, you're going to have to get off the treadmill. But we run back to the treadmill every day. And we buy into this lie and we're marketed by marketers to believe this lie that if I have that toothpaste, I'll be sexy. If I have that phone, I'll be liked. If I have that car, people will look at me and go, wow, she's amazing. She's a career woman because she drives a Lexus or a Cadillac or a Buick LaSalle, whatever your thing is, right? If I move into that neighborhood. And so we get back on the treadmill and we chase things that lead us to a life that is filled with consequences, and we get scarred and we get beat up by our own doing, and we forget one of the most essential laws that should be evident because it's springtime, that you reap what you sow, that what you plant in your life, what you feed grows, 
What you put into your life will come out of your life. And you may have come here tonight and you may be running recklessly towards something that you think is going to have, give you satisfaction and pleasure and meaning. All the while, theologically, you're conjured up some kind of view of God that, that you think, oh, well, he'll just forgive you when you decide to get off that treadmill. And that may be true. God may forgive you. But there will be consequences for our actions. We can't just wipe pornography from our minds. We can't just wipe debt off of our records. We can't just wipe alcoholic out of our life. We can't just wipe the vain pursuit of things that may be good and, and redeem that time. There are seasons that you may have wasted, but you don't have to stay there tonight. And I'm telling you that what you chase now will be what captures you later. My dad, he had sex for the first time when he was 12 with a prostitute in Mexico. And he thought it was great, even looking back on it when he was telling me when I was a young man, he celebrated it. My dad had his first drink of alcohol when he was around the same age, so that when I was eight, he gave me my first shot of tequila. And I watched my dad, and I knew early on that my dad loved me, but he wasn't a wise man in some areas. And some of you think somehow that your life's going to be different, that you can chase women however you want, or you can chase a substance however you want, and that it's not going to capture you later in life. You're a fool. We will reap what we sow. And if you're chasing after these things, it may capture you later. And God may forgive you, but you will carry it with you. So Solomon, he's exhausted by chasing these things. But, but again, you and I think that we're different. So here's a question I have for you. Okay, th this is a great question for you to ask. You may want to write this down. What decision do I need to make today? What decision do I need to make today that my future self will thank me for later? What decision do I need to make today? That may be a, a, you need to stop something. What decision do I need to make today that my future self will thank me for later? Maybe you need to stop something. Maybe you need to start something. What decision do you need to make today that your future self will thank you for later? Because you can keep living and learning, or you can learn and then live. And so let's learn and let's heed from the laboratory and the experiment of King Solomon, the wisest man on planet earth, and understand what he has to say clearly in Ecclesiastes 3, that you and I were not meant to be satisfied by the trappings of this world. We were created for something more, so much so that in this book of wisdom, in this kind of dark, just depressing a little bit book, he would say that you have had God who has set eternity into your life in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He says you were made for something more. And this may be your present reality, but can I suggest to you tonight a better reality? Point number two, if you're taking notes tonight, a better reality, a better reality. God has made you and me to be satisfied by something beyond the sun. That if nothing under the sun, nothing on planet earth will satisfy that eternal longing in our life, that it demands what will satisfy. The only thing that can satisfy an eternal longing is something that is eternal. So Solomon's conclusion at the end of this Ecclesiastes, at the end of this letter, he says this, 
In uh, Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14, he says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, you can circle that, and keep his commandments, you can circle that. That's the conclusion. Here's what he says, for this is the duty of all mankind. Some of your translations say, this is man's all. In the Hebrew, that's just one word, Adam. The first man that God made, the perfect man, if you will, Adam. Solomon writes here that this is the conclusion of my failed experiment. Fear God, keep his commands, and get back to the garden. Be who God made you to be. It's not chasing these things, these trappings. If you want meaning, fear God, keep his commandments. And he gives us a warning to conclude. He says this, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil, that you and I will give an account for our lives. Jesus would one up Solomon and he would say, you will give an account for every word you have uttered. You know that our words scientifically do not dissipate and God can capture them because he has eternal ears and we'll stand before God and he'll say, oh, sarcasm? That for every thought, for everything that we've done, we will give an account when we stand before God. What do you trust in that day? And what Solomon's trying to say is that if you want to get traction in your satisfaction, you need to heed the words that I'm putting down tonight, all right? And so he says, this is the conclusion of my great experiment. Fear God, keep his commandments. Fear God, keep his commandments. Let me help you break that down real quick. Fear of God, here it is. Fearing God is when we understand where everything comes from. Fearing God is when we understand where everything comes from. Basically, fearing God equals he's the creator, and, and, and I am not. And we stand and we look up. I mean, you know this. Maybe you've been to the Rockies and you go, wow. Maybe you've been to the beach and you go, I can't see the shore. Maybe you watch something on TV. You can't travel like me. And you just go, wow. You know, like the screensaver. Like, man, I'd like to go there. Some, is that Tahiti? I can't even spell Tahiti. But God, you're good. <laughs> like to go there someday. Anyway, and so maybe, I mean, you, but when you see these things, it, it just grips you. And you're like, fearing God is going, God, you are awesome and I'm not. Solomon would write in Ecclesiastes 12, and he says this redundantly throughout this letter. He says it like this, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Like we have this tendency as young adults to dismiss all that God is doing around us because we come in here so discontent, chasing things, trying to find meaning, but honestly not finding it. And Solomon says, hey, remember, fear God, remember your creator in the days of your youth. That Ecclesiastes is this stunning truth that, that the key to life is not life itself. That Solomon is saying, once again, that you can't, you can't get enough pleasure, materials, wisdom, or money to satisfy you. That they're futile and they're folly. And when we live in light of God as our creator, life begins to find light and meaning and flavor and color you were meant for so much more. You were meant for more than beer pong in your neighbor's garage. You were meant for more than tailgating, having sex with yourself. You were meant for more than being the king of Westport. You were meant for more than keeping up with the Kaufmans. You were meant for more than being the most decorated soldier in modern warfare. Some of y'all gonna get that in a minute. That's a video game. Like, bro, you're not in the military. Okay, let's make that straight. You play video games. You were meant for more, check this out, than making a lot of money. 
You were meant for more than memories and a happy marriage. This Solomon is saying there's a better reality. Fear God, recognize him as your creator. That we miss out on our meaning because we live apart from our maker. That God has given us all that we know so that we would worship him for all that he is. And so why did God give us sex? So that we would get married and enjoy sex with our spouse and give him glory. Why did God give us ice cream? So that we would go to Betty Ray's and walk in and it smells awesome. And we would get that weird pistachio with lavender ice cream. And somehow it tastes good even though it looks gross, but yes. And then we'd tell God, God, thank you for lavenders, whatever that is, pistachios and all this stuff. And then why did God give you coffee and conversations and color and community so that you would experience them all his way, his time, and you'd give him praise? Fear God, he is your creator. So here's my challenge, slow down. Slow down and savor what God has given you. Uh, we got to go to Chateau Milk Farm, and uh, well, thank you, Jesus, for Chateau, right? I'm in Kansas City, the land flowing with milk and coffee. And here's my crew right here, um, and so we're out there having a good time. We got to do two things, at least, at Chateau Milk Farm. We got to milk a cow, which was kind of gross and a little bit shocking to my children. <laughs> and then we got to eat homemade ice cream. Now, my kids, they have a hard time connecting us, and, and sometimes you and I do too, but who thought of this? Like, like, honestly, slow down and savor what's going on. God created a cow, big animal, but gave us dominion. She just sits there, old Betsy, big old udder, weird, but you can milk that joker. One squirt at a time, you get milk, a bucket full of milk. It translates ultimately into ice cream. You're not eating ice cream and thinking about the smell that just came out of that barn. But God, in his divine mystery, in the intricacies, in the wonder of all that we know is creation, he would say, I'm going to make this cow become ice cream. I'm going to put a piece of meat inside of your head. It's going to talk, but it's also going to have bumps on it called taste buds. Those taste buds are going to be co connected to your olfactory senses. That's what your smell is. So that even when you look at ice cream, even though it may not smell a whole lot, you can get a small whiff because your nose is one of the most amazing senses that you have. It has a better memory than most elephants' brains. It can remember things, and it smells just a faint hint of ice cream. You start salivating. And though you just left the cow poop-infested barn with the weird udder and the milk, you get excited and expectant about what's about to go down with this ice cream. Who thought of this? Who's the mastermind behind this most simple, most amazing pleasure? It's God. None of you would ever think of creating a cow that would become ice cream or fajitas or whatever else. <laughs> right? Right? And God has given us this, and so slow down and savor. There's meaning when we experience the creation and we give God the praise. So fear God, worship him, because when you are most satisfied in him, he is most glorified through you. A better reality, fear God. Number two, Solomon says, fear God and keep his commandments. This is kind of like the, man, this doesn't sound very fun, but let me break this down. Keeping his commandments is when we understand how to enjoy what he's made his way, all right? Keep his commandments. God has made everything, 
And when we do things his way, it pays off for us. Solomon, he, he sought the best that life had to offer. He did it his way like Sinatra. But here's what he found, that nothing rivals simple obedience to God. And so he said, I've done it all. I've had more sex than you could dream of. I threw bigger parties than you could never do. I've built aqueducts, forests, wonders. I've been the most sought after man in the world. But nothing rivals simple obedience to your maker. That what Solomon would say that you can do is fear God and keep his commandments. And what Solomon would say that you should do above all things is to fear God and keep his commandments. You know that God wants you to experience pleasure uninhibited? God wants you to experience pleasure uninhibited, not unrestricted. God wants you to experience pleasure uninhibited. It's like God's immodest. He's risque, he's sexy, but not unrestricted. And so God says things like this, hey, drink deep, you lovers, and have your fill. That the marriage bed is undefiled. That you should drink deep from the well that you've been given. Have sex as often and as long and as much as you want in marriage. And what, what social scientists, I love this when the social scientists, they, they affirm the scriptures. What social scientists tell us that the most sexually satisfied people are those who have been married and those who are, have been married for about 25 years. And so about your parents' age, when they're in their 50s, that's when they're really hitting the crescendo of their climax. Now let's just wipe that out real quick, okay? Just, just, all right? Just swipe, yeah, swipe right on that or left, whatever it is, right? Don't swipe left, whatever, I don't know. Anyway, whatever, just get rid of it, delete. That God wants you to live a life of sacrifice. He says, hey, keep my commandments. Be a man that sacrifices. You know that when you sacrifice, you release a chemical in your brain that's like that of heroin? That when you sacrifice, you release dopamine? You release oxytocin? The person that you're sacrificing for, they release it too? And then the person that watches you sacrifice, they get a shot too. That God has rigged our bodies that when we keep his commandments, we get more pleasure. And so Solomon's saying, this is where you find meaning. Fear God. Keep his commandments. God says, get in community. You know that? Because there are dangerous things that happen in the heart of men and women when they get isolated. So he says, be known. I know it's risky, but when you are known, you are truly loved. And we want to be loved and so when God says keep the commandments, he's trying to push you to enjoy life that God made you and wants you to enjoy what he has made. So much so that Paul wrote this in 1 Timothy 6, 17. He says, trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. I did a word study on that word enjoy, and you know what it means? Enjoy. Like there's no confusion here. It's, really, it's, it's used two times in the New Testament. One says, don't pursue things outside of God's will and, 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 and those pleasures and enjoy them. Right here he says, hey, trust God, love God, enjoy. God is not a killjoy. He wants you to enjoy life. St. Augustine, he says this, love God and then do what you want. Let me liberate you tonight. Some of you are more restricted than God. 
love God and do what you want, Solomon, he says this in Ecclesiastes 3, 12, he says, I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all of his labor. Check this out. It is the gift of God. And so if you love God and you want to buy a house, buy a house. If you love God and you want to get married, get married. If you love God and you want to go to Jersey Mike's and get a subway, go to Jersey Mike's. You ain't got to be like, Lord, I just want you to leave me for lunch. To, no, go. Do, love God. Do what you want. If you want to travel, love God and travel. God wants you to be a man or a woman of adventure, whatever that means to you. But he wants you to be a man or a woman that's madly in love with him. And the way you love God is that you obey his commands, like Solomon said. And then you'll begin to find meaning in life. Love God. Do what you want. Be wild at heart. Faith is risky. Go and do. Following God is sometimes it's not logical. It leads you to places like India or places like Arizona. I mean, it, but follow God. Don't waste your life chasing things that don't matter. Follow God. And if God inspires you to do something, do it. Because every inspiration has an expiration. And Solomon is telling us tonight to fear God, keep his commandments. And this is about our delight, not our duty. He's trying to lead us to greater pleasure. And so, so often we approach God like he wants our sacrifice, you know? Like he wants our, our begrudging obedience. So recently in my house, I'm, I'm married of 10 years and uh, we've, just, we've been really busy. It's just a season for us right now. Uh, we had a birthday with one of our kids. We baptized her. Uh, we had family come in. Uh, and so it's just been busy. And so... I've been in this mode like, you know, sacrifice and serve, sacrifice and serve, just doing my, doing my deal as a husband, right? So I'm going to get home, I'm going to whip them dishes, right? Because foreplay starts in the kitchen if you get married someday, all right? You just need to remember this shelf that, that was for free. Anyway, I'm doing them dishes, right? And so I'm serving and sacrificing. And then Chelsea and I, we were a little bit at odds, okay? And so um, because, you know, we have people in town and that always creates a little bit of a weird dynamic and we haven't connected in a while. So um, uh, about a, a week ago, um, I'm in there, I just done the dishes and she comes around and she's like, hey, I just feel like we're not, we're not connecting. And I'm like, yeah, okay, it's the end of the day, you know. I mean, the kids are in bed, I'm tired. And what do you, I mean, baby, I've been serving you. I've been sacrificing for you. What else do you want me to do? And a lot of times we approach God like that's what he wants. He just wants us to, you know, to work hard, keep our head down, serve, sacrifice. My wife looks at me after I ask that question, what do you want to do? She says, I'd like to dance with you. I said, right now? <laughs> she said, yeah, we haven't danced in a while. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> Get some music on, a little Johnny Swim, diamonds, you know, and then got my slow jam, right? And sometimes God is saying, hey, slow down. I'm not so interested in your doing, your sacrifice, and your serving. Won't you come dance? That the Trinity, God in three and one, it, he's, he's this rhythmic, harmonious creator. That he, in his essence, is in a divine dance, and he's inviting us. Hey, come enjoy me. 
that fear God, keep his commandments. We've, we've hijacked that and made it something it's not. Solomon says, hey, fear God, keep his commandments for your delight, not your duty. And this is a better reality paradigm. And so God is inviting us to understand these things, that there's a better reality, that your life doesn't have to become a failed experiment, that you don't have to let your culture get contaminated, to fear God, keep his commandments, and let your better reality stem from your future reality. Point number three, if you're taking notes tonight, your future reality, your future reality. Jesus, he would write something very interesting in Matthew chapter 12. He would say this, the queen of the south, her name's Sheba from Ethiopia, African. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Check this out. So Jesus is, he's, he's working in this culture. They knew who Sheba was. You and I probably don't. Sheba, she went from Ethiopia to visit Solomon because she was like, I heard that dude got it going on. I'm going to go check it out, right? And so she went up there. She searched out Solomon. And what Jesus is saying, but, but she's going to condemn you and judge you. Why? He says, and indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. And you're not interested. Sheba, she, was, she approached Solomon Curiously, she had heard these rumors of his wealth. She had heard these rumors of his wisdom and of his works. And, and she was like curious, like, I'm, I'm going to check this out. Like, I heard Solomon's, you know, he's good and good looking and, you know, I mean, he's got it going on. And so instead of um, her sending like an, a delegate or an ambassador or somebody to go, she was like, you know what? Pack the bags, get my Louis Vuitton or whatever the Ethiopian brand is, and I'm going to get up there to Jerusalem and visit Solomon. And so she went from curiously setting that in, she put that in motion and she went personally to Solomon. Solomon. She said, I've got I've to come and see this man for myself and see if the rumors are true. And when she got there, she found that the rumors were true and then some. And so she came to Solomon curiously, then personally, and her response was sacrificially. That she gave Solomon the greatest gift he ever received. That she gave him this lump sum of wealth to, uh, to lavish her appreciation for the man that he was. And Jesus is saying, there is someone greater to, than, than Solomon here, and you don't even care. And so Jesus, what he's saying is, and this is crazy, that I'm greater than Solomon. And, and people would have been like, what, who are you talking about? He's like, me. They're like, well, how can you say that? I'm God. And so Jesus is claiming this audacious claim that he is greater than Solomon. That he's like, hey, turns out that Solomon's not the valedictorian of humanity. I am. He's the salutatorian. I mean, give him props. You know, he's, he's smart, but I, I'm the valedictorian. That Jesus is saying, look, look, Solomon was wealthy, but I'm wealthier. That Jesus is saying, I'm wisdom, I'm pleasure, I'm fulfillment, I'm significance, I'm reality, I'm meaning, I'm life. And so you're searching for significance right here. You're marching for meaning right here. You're racing for reality right here. You're hunting for happiness right here. Jesus is like, I'm greater than Solomon. And Jesus is like, if I'm so much greater than Solomon, then why are you running back to the treadmills of, of false hedonism, false pleasure, false pursuits, thinking that in them you're going to find meaning. He says, I'm greater than Solomon, and I'm right here. Spurgeon, he says this, a great preacher of the 19th century, 20th century, he says, if you don't know the gospel, never rest until you do. 
And Jesus is saying tonight, hey, come and see. Come and see. Some of you are here tonight and you're just checking Jesus out. And maybe you've heard some rumors about Jesus. Most people in our culture, if you said, hey, who's Jesus? We have some sort of response to that question. And maybe you've heard rumors about this great teacher or this great miracle worker or this great pacifist or the whoever. Maybe you've heard rumors about him. Jesus is inviting you tonight to come and test and see if the rumors are actually true. He's saying, you got to move from curiosity to searching me out personally. Don't send your mama. Don't send your granny. Don't send your neighbor. You come personally. God doesn't want a faith for you to experience through someone else. He wants to know you personally. He formed you in his womb. And so he's inviting every one of you tonight. Though we may be here as a collective, he may be speaking to you individually. And he's saying, hey, come and see. Come examine. And he's inviting us tonight. And he's saying, come and see whether I can forgive great sins. Come and see if I can forgive a divorce, an abortion a life captured by worry. Come and see if I can forgive a porn addiction. Come and see if I can forgive self-righteousness and false pride. Come and see if I can forgive great sins. Come and see whether I can help you in great trials. Come and bring to me your great doubts and your grievous distresses. Come and tell me of your despair and your horrible thoughts and the blasphemous questions that creep through your minds. Come and see whether I am a savior able to save you. It will be a new thing if I have to say, well, you're behind my power. No, Jesus is saying, you cannot sin beyond my grace. He's saying, come and try me with your hardest questions and most difficult cases, and you'll only prove the truth of my word, that when you come to me, I will not cast you out. Come and test my love. Come and see me on the cross. Come and see me raising from the grave, that the queen of Sheba, she went for herself, and that's the point. You have to come and see Christ, the greater Solomon, for yourself. This is a future reality. You'll never know a better reality. You'll never know meaning a from your maker and Jesus is extending to you the opportunity tonight to align your souls with the one that created your soul so that you can properly and have the energy to fear God and keep his commandments have you seen him on the cross dying for you have you been melted and moved by the king of the universe dying for you For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten king to die so that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish, wouldn't waste their life chasing vain pursuits, but they would have everlasting life. They would have a better reality and a future reality. He didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Have you seen the price that he paid? Have you seen the power that he displayed? And how have you responded? How do you see this king raising from the grave, like Aslan in the child's story, resurrecting and storming in battle on your behalf? What have you done? Sheba, she 
came to Solomon and once she searched him out, she responded sacrificially. How do you come to Christ? See, I'm convinced the way we come to Christ and the gospel that saves us is the gospel that keeps us. And if you think coming to Christ is some kind of, I'm just going to skip into his presence, get doused with forgiveness, and then go back to the hell I was living in, you're grossly mistaken. That the gospel is as simple as your faith in what Jesus has done, but it's as difficult as you sacrificing the greatest gift that he's given you, and that's your life. So how have you come to Christ? Do you have a future reality with him? We're about to sing a song called Worthy of Every Song, Every Praise, Everything. And it's a declaration that we want to see you build your life on Christ because he's a firm foundation. I, I wonder, have you done that in your life? Or do you think your life will somehow be different and that you'll, you'll grasp the wind? and find meaning under the sun. What are you building your life on? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for tonight. God, I thank you for my friends. I thank you for their willingness to sacrifice a Tuesday night to come here and hear from your truth. God, I pray that we would evaluate our lives, that we would discover that oftentimes we drift back towards these treadmills of dissatisfaction and we wonder why we find no traction. God, I pray that you would help us to begin to see transformation. God, that we would simply come to you in humility and maybe admit that we may have been wrong and that you would teach us to follow you. God, I pray that we would fear you, that we would experience you as our creator and slow down and savor the things you've given us. So the next time we drink a cup of coffee, we would think about who made it whose idea was it, and that we would worship you. God, that we would trust that your way is better, that you give us your commandments because you love us and you want to lead us to great places of life. God, to someone here, I pray that they would trust you with their life. God, that they would see the rumors about you are true, that they would come to you humbly and personally tonight, and they would place their faith in you and they would offer you their life someone else that maybe hasn't offered their life in totality, you've got to pray for surrender tonight. That when we completely surrender, God, that you would help us be completely satisfied. In Jesus' name I pray.